Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, I'm going to cover the story of Spotify, really the the origin of Spotify, and then a bit about what it's been up to recently. And just for the interests of full disclosure, I feel I should point out that the company I work for, iHeartMedia, is a competitor to Spotify. But don't worry, I'm going to cover this topic just like I would any other, as objective as possible, and maybe with some bad jokes and puns. And I think this will also help lead into a discussion about the way consumer media has changed significantly over the last couple of decades. That might actually be a second episode that I'll focus on a little bit later. The story of Spotify is tied very closely with its founders, uh, mainly Daniel Ek, but also Martin Lawrenson. Those are uh, two Swedish businessmen who set out to change how people access music. And while the service would launch in 2008, the real story begins much earlier with Daniel Ek. And initially in 2002, but we're going to go even earlier than that. See, Daniel Ek was an enterprising kid, like super enterprising. Uh, At an interview at an event that was called a Pando Monthly in New York City back in 2012, he talked about how as a young teen, and I'm talking about 13 years old, 14 years old, he started making money by creating websites for local businesses in Sweden. He was uh, interested in coding and he was getting into it and he started getting hired to make websites for for companies. And we're not talking about a small amount of money. I mean, his first job was about $100, and then he went up to about $200, and it started going up from there. And according to Eck, at one point, he was pulling down about 50 grand a month doing business. So imagine that, being in high school, and your side gig is pulling you down $50,000 a month. Yikes. That was going pretty well. Until the Swedish tax authority notified Eck that he owed the government a substantial amount of money to the tune of a couple hundred grand, Eck's early fortune was pretty much wiped out and he learned a valuable lesson about running a business, which is that you can't do it on the QT forever. Around 2002, Eck started thinking about the problem with digital music and piracy, and it was definitely a big problem. Services like Napster, Nutella, and Kazaa had been home to huge databases of pirated music since the late 1990s, uh, or had facilitated music piracy since the 1990s, since not all of them were really databases, they were more like peer-to-peer networks, more on that in a little bit. So governments around the world were responding by creating some pretty draconian laws in an effort to curb online piracy. The governments were largely responding to big media companies that were putting a lot of pressure on elected officials to fix this problem. Everyone could see that the internet was going to be an important component in all sorts of industries. Apple had already staked its own claim with iTunes in 2001, but there was a real concern that piracy essentially translated into lost sales. Now, to that point, I want to acknowledge that it's not as simple as that. If I walk into an old-fashioned record store and I shoplift an album, we're talking like old vinyl albums, and I grab a copy of uh, Phil Collins' Greatest Hits because I'm real bad, and I slip it under my, my jacket and I, and I step out the, the door, that's a clear loss for the shop owner of that music shop, right? 
Because I've taken one physical album. The shop owner has a limited number of physical copies that they have ordered from the record label. So they've spent a certain amount of money to get a certain number of copies of each title. I just took one of those. They can no longer sell that particular album. So they are out the cost they incurred when they ordered it. That's pretty clear, right? You can understand that's a direct loss. But with digital media, it's different. Maybe I never intended to buy a certain song. Maybe I kind of want that song, but I don't want it badly enough to actually spend my money on it. So I decide I'm just going to pirate a copy. The original song, however, still exists. The original copy of the song still exists. I didn't take anything physical. Nothing is stopping a vendor from selling just as many copies as they would have, even if I hadn't taken anything. So for that reason, you can't really argue that stolen songs directly translate into lost revenue in the digital market. Because it could be that the people who downloaded songs illegally otherwise would have just never bought the music at all. So they may have just gone without. It's not a lost sale because it was never going to be a sale in the first place. Now, I don't want this to be one-sided. While the people downloading music for free were circumventing the legal route and they were effectively stealing music, whether you could argue that it was causing direct harm or not, the music industry wasn't exactly making a good case for purchasing music legally. The music landscape was fractured, with some record labels signing with certain online stores, other record labels would sign with other stores. Sometimes it was very piecemeal, where certain albums would be allowed and others wouldn't. And then there was the matter of digital rights management, or DRM. Uh, this is a way of protecting digital uh, property. Many companies have been putting restrictive DRM on music files. Uh, it's meant to prevent you from being able to make an infinite number of copies of a digital file because obviously that's a downside to the digital uh, format, at least if you are in the business of selling stuff, right? If the thing you create it can be replicated infinitely by anyone, then all you have to do is sell one of those and then immediately you never sell another copy because people just start copying them and and distributing them everywhere. So DRM was meant to be a counter to that, you to prevent people from being able to copy indiscriminately in some way or another. But one of the nasty side effects of DRM is that it can impact the experience of legitimate customers, right? So the purpose of DRM is to protect digital media so that people can't just steal it. But when that same DRM makes it harder to listen to legitimately purchased music, the people who are actually buying the stuff feel as though they've been punished for buying it, right? If you if you bought a song and it turns out you can't listen to the song the way you want to, despite the fact that you spent money on it, you're not you don't have an incentive to keep doing that, right? You're you're you've got a bad experience. Meanwhile, pirates would spend some time and effort in order to strip files from uh, the DRM, or rather DRM from the files, so that the versions that they would upload or allow to be downloaded from their machines would be DRM-free. So you would actually have a better experience listening to the pirated music than if you were to purchase the legal stuff. So as a consumer, you had two choices, essentially. You could jump through some hoops and deal with a crappy listening experience with official music that you pay for, and it's got DRM and everything, so it's got all this baggage attached to it, or... You could pop on over to a piracy site or service and then download whatever you want for free. 
Now, there always was a risk that you could also end up downloading some malware on top of the music files or whatever it was you were after, but for many, it seemed like it was worth the risk. So, the whole thing was kind of a mess, and Eck thought there had to be a better way. There had to be some method to making music available digitally that would remove the hurdles that the public would have to jump over to get to what they wanted. And if he could crack that, if he could build a real business out of it, then he could stand to really make some money. And he was thinking, there's got to be a way to make the experience seamless enough where the legal route is preferable to piracy. That's the secret. If you can make it just as easy or easier to buy music as it would be to steal it, then more people are going to buy it. And the reasoning was that a lot of people want to actually spend money supporting the stuff they love. They just, if if you make it frustrating, they'll go around that because who wants to deal with that kind of nonsense? Now, this was back in 2002, but it would still be a few years before he would develop the idea further. In the meantime, he worked for a couple of companies and he founded some other companies, including an online advertising firm called Advertigo, which he would later sell for a big profit. In fact, he ended up founding and selling four companies in a relatively short time. This was right after the the, the wake of uh, eBay purchasing Skype. It kind of opened up the mergers and acquisitions market in Europe at that time. And by then he was a millionaire and he was considering retiring at the ripe old age of 23 years old. But instead, he thought about that music challenge again. Also, millionaire by 23, way to go, dude. Man, that's some hustle right there. So Eck found a partner in Martin Lorenzen. He was actually the guy who had acquired Advertigo from Daniel Eck. And that was Eck's advertising platform. The two began to brainstorm about making a legal music service that removed some of the barriers that other official stores had kind of been putting up. They reasoned that those barriers encouraged people to resort to piracy and the music industry as a whole was hurting. As, and so something had to be done. But if you just made it easier to get that music you wanted legally, they figured people would do it, just like I was saying earlier. So they created an office out of a three-bedroom apartment that was above a coffee shop, and they began to work on their design. Their plan was to leverage peer-to-peer networks to deliver streaming music. So what exactly is a peer-to-peer network and how does it work? Well, some of you might be unfamiliar with peer-to-peer. It's something that was really big in the 90s. It's still quite big today. It's just not talked about as much. A lot of the conversation has shifted to cloud computing, but peer-to-peer is still a very important methodology. So here's a quick rundown. First, you've got a network of computers, all right? They're, they're connected perhaps over the internet, but it's a, it's a network within the internet. It's not the entire internet. So each of those computers could be owned by a regular person like yourself. And each computer in that network is what we would call a peer. Each computer on the network is running special software, which is what makes them peers. It uh, connects them to, it creates this network among all the peers on that particular connection. And peers can share files with one another without having to go through an intermediary server. So if I'm on the network and you're on the network, we could share files directly with one another. And typically, 
The way this would work is that you would designate a special folder on your computer's hard drive to act as a share folder, and anything you would put in that share folder could be seen and copied by peers on the network. And the more peers who have copies of a file, the faster downloads go as your computer can pull from the best connection available across the network. You can get bits and pieces from different computers and just download a file much faster than if it were dependent upon a single source. So the more computers on a peer-to-peer network that are hosting a file, the faster those transfers will go. Now, there's nothing illegal about this method of file transfer. It's a great way to disseminate large files across a network. It's efficient, and it removes the need for more hefty network servers. But it also allowed for people to share stuff illegally at a pretty alarming rate, at least alarming to media companies. And so selling the idea of a a legal peer-to-peer network was a bit of an uphill battle. However, the actual implementation of a peer-to-peer network using Spotify's service was a lot different from the Napsters and Kazaas of the piracy era. The plan wasn't to allow users to build up an enormous library of songs on their personal computers, which they then could help distribute across an ever-widening network and thus sap the music industry of its revenue. Instead, the plan was to use peer-to-peer relationships to create a good listening experience for users to sidestep another problem. That problem was, if you wanted to create a centralized music-on-demand service, you'd be beholden to the internet connections between your server, your giant music database, and all of your users. Now, this wasn't as huge a problem in Sweden, which was a leading, and still is, a leading country when it comes to rolling out high-speed broadband internet, but it would make it difficult to scale Spotify globally. So let's say that you did go with this method where you went with a centralized approach. You have your big music database that's sitting in a data center somewhere on your property. If a connection were bad between a user and this database, the user might have to wait for a long time for a song to buffer far enough along to start playing. That's irritating. Or worse, the song's quality might suffer in the middle of the song, or it might stop playing. You know, it might stop mid-playthrough while the service tried to get the data from the server side to the user's device and restart the song. The peer-to-peer approach could help that, and I'll explain how it works in just a moment, but let's get back to the business side for a second. They met with a lot of resistance from record labels because they were going to have to get licensing agreements from those record labels in order to do this. But their arguments were persuasive. It took a long time, but they were making some pretty sound arguments. They laid out the challenges that I mentioned earlier with the older model of music. They stated their case in terms of business plans, and they said the licensing fees and royalties would provide steady revenue to the record labels and presumably to artists. More on that in a second. But it was challenging to get the record labels to agree. It was also challenging to get investors on board. Because without the backing of the music industry, there was no business for Spotify. They, they had nothing to provide anybody. And many investors saw the idea as a bad bet. So Lorentzen would end up funding operations for a couple of years just out of, out of pocket. Now, gradually, record labels began to come around. And they sort of had to because the music industry revenues had peaked in 1999 at $27 billion. That's a lot of cheddar, as Ben Boland would say. But that 
was the peak. It went into decline after that. Sales started flagging. This wasn't just due to piracy, although to hear the music industry, they would argue vehemently that piracy was what took the largest chunk out of their uh, their revenue. Uh, I would say that there were a lot of different factors. But by a decade later, in 2008, the global industry was down to $14 billion. That's still a lot of money, but that's like half of what it was in 1999. And so it took Spotify about two years from its conception to launch. It was thought of in 2002. It was seriously started in 2006. And it was launched in 2008, in October 2008, uh, and launched in just a few European countries at the time. It did get the backing of the four major music labels. That would be Warner Music, Sony, EMI Music, and Universal. Now, when we come back, I'll talk more about how the service works and how it's evolved since 2008. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, so let's talk about the Spotify service. To access Spotify, you first need to download the client software for whatever platforms you plan to use. Now, originally, this was limited to desktop computers. So your first step was downloading some software to your machine and installing it. This would act as your interface, allowing you to search for songs on the service, but it also served as the peer-to-peer software to make your machine part of the overall sharing network. This client can pull music stored on your computer into your Spotify library, assuming the music you have isn't stored in a protected M4P file. That's actually a little bit redundant because M4P stands for MPEG-4 Protected Audio. Uh, This was a file extension that Apple's FairPlay digital rights management system used. The format restricted the devices that could play the associated audio file and limited it to uh, authorized devices only. So if a device was authorized to play the file, it could, otherwise it could not. Uh, Spotify, just to sidestep any problems, said we can't handle any of those types of files. However, if you did happen to have songs in that format, Spotify would look to see if it had a license for those tracks on its service. So if you happen to have a track of an artist that was on Spotify and that song was on Spotify, it would match the track with what was in your library and just go ahead and put that in your playlist. It's just you wouldn't be listening to the version that was on your computer. You would actually be listening to one that was on the Spotify service itself. And it would be a a uh, non-M4P DRM version. All other songs, whether in Spotify's licensing agreements or not, would appear in your library assuming you have DRM-free versions on your computer. So even if you had a whole mess of songs in your computer's uh, memory, if it was in its hard drive, that were not on Spotify, let's say that you had all the Beatles albums, and Beatles was one of those groups that wasn't being carried by Spotify, it would show up in your library because you had them on your hard drive, but no one else would be able to listen to those using Spotify, you know, pulling it over the network. The format Spotify uses when streaming music is the Vorbis method of audio compression. Vorbis is an open source software project, and it uses the file extension .ogg, or og, for compressed audio files. So you often hear people talk about it as og vorbis, which sounds like a, a character from Game of Thrones. Now, actually, 
It does trace its name to a fantasy series, but one that's a little more lighthearted than George R.R. R. Martin's epic saga, because the name Vorbis comes from Terry Pratchett's fantasy comedy series Discworld, a fantastic comedy fantasy series. If you've never read any of the Discworld books, I highly recommend checking them out. But this uh, name was specifically from the book Small Gods. Og is also a name that shows up in Terry Pratchett's works, but that was just a coincidence. The, uh, the Og extension was not named after the Terry Pratchett character uh, uh, Nanny Og in the Discworld books. I've talked about audio compression before, but here's a, a quick reminder. The purpose for compression is that audio files tend to be pretty large. And the larger the file size, the more time it takes to send over a network. And that time is experienced by the user as a lag between hitting the play button and hearing any sound, or in the form of having a song stop partway through while the data transfer continues in the background, or having the quality of the sound drop in the middle of playthrough. So compression means you take these files and you make the file sizes smaller and thus easier to transfer across a network. And there are two broad ways to do this. There's lossless and lossy. Now, lossless compression means that you take a file, you squish it down, you compress it, and when you unsquash it, when you, when you expand it back, you have the bit-for-bit identical file as the pre-compressed version. So you have song file A, you compress it into compressed format B, and when you take it back out of compression, it is back to song file A again. This is not easy to do, and typically you only reduce the file size by a relatively small amount. Uh, some files can only be compressed down maybe 5%, which does not save you a whole lot of space. You might be able to get it down as much as 50% with certain types of lossless compression. But if you're really looking at a high-quality audio file and it's a large audio file, even a 50% reduction is still still means you're dealing with a big file. It still might be too big for you to easily stream. Lossy compression can squish files down much smaller than lossless, but they do so at, drumroll please, a loss. Lossy compression ditches some of the data in the audio file during the compression process. Now, ideally, the information the compression format ditches represents stuff that you wouldn't be able to notice anyway because human hearing can only pick up a range of frequencies. And typically we describe it as the average human can hear between 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. Anything that is above or below that range is outside what we could directly perceive. So if the audio file has any information about sounds beyond human hearing, then it might just sweep that stuff under the digital rug before compressing the rest. It might say, well, no one could hear this anyway, so there's no point in keeping it, and I'm just going to not include that information. There are a lot of different rules for compression and different codecs to follow different philosophies, but they're all based on the psychoacoustic model of how we perceive sound. So if it determines that we would not have perceived that sound, it can go out, out the door. At the end of the day, if it's important, it's supposed to go into the compressed file. And if it's not, it doesn't. The question is who determines what exactly is important. That's what the different codecs do. Moving on. So Spotify chose the Vorbis format because it represented a great return on investments. 
Plus, being open source and in the public domain meant that the company could use the format without worrying about licensing issues. So there was no fear that one day they would turn around and encounter resistance from some vendor that had them over a barrel by holding onto a compression license in return for more money. They, no one's going to say to them, oh, well, I see that you're doing really well now, so we want a bigger cut of the profits. Uh, Also, according to Kevin Goldsmith, who was the vice president of engineering at Spotify for several years, the Og Vorbis format provided good audio quality relative to the bandwidth needed to stream the audio, so they just felt like they were getting the best results with it. The standard audio quality for Spotify's desktop app is 160 kilobits per second. Now, technically, that refers to the audio file's bit rate, or the number of bits used per unit of playback time to represent audio. Generally speaking, the higher that number, the better quality of audio you get. Essentially, you're saying you're using more information to to present that sound per unit of time. 160 kilobits per second is kind of in the middle of audio quality for streaming. If you were to upgrade to premium Spotify, uh, and more on that later, the bit rate would be increased to 320 kilobits per second. So you would have higher quality audio files. Uh, The actual quality of the audio you would experience would be dependent not just on bit rate, but other stuff, sample rate and all that good stuff, plus the quality of the speakers you're using. So in some cases, you might not really be able to tell the difference between 160 kilobits per second and 320 kilobits per second if you had really low quality headphones, for example. You might listen to the exact same track and not be able to tell the difference between the good version and the bad version, quote unquote, or the good version and the better version if you prefer, uh, if your headphones are are crappy. So it's dependent on lots of different things. Plus, it's dependent upon our perception, which is not 100% reliable all the time. All right. While Spotify relied on DRM-free music to pull into the music library, the format Spotify uses to stream includes DRM. So that's also something to remember. In addition to the songs that you've already got stored on your device, you can search the Spotify service for specific tracks. So these would be things that you don't own, that aren't on your hard drive. If Spotify has an agreement with whatever entity holds the right for that music, the track should pop right up. So let's say you play on a track that you want to hear. You you have decided you want to hear SOB by Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, which is a phenomenal song. You don't have that song on your hard drive, though. So you open up Spotify, and you type it in, and you see that it's available there. Spotify serves up a streaming version of the song to you. And rather than serve it to you from a central server, it consults the network of Spotify users, and it finds copies of the song on those peers, those users whose devices are currently connected to the network. And it sends the file to you streaming by relying on this network. This helps ensure that you get an uninterrupted experience played at a decent sound quality. And while you're listening to the music, Spotify is actually storing the song in a memory cache on your computer, and that serves two purposes. First, because Spotify is staying a little ahead of you in your listening experience, you're listening to music that's stored on your device's memory, not pouring directly in from the Spotify feed. So as long as the data going into your memory is outpacing the playback speed, you won't have any interruptions. So in other words, they're filling up the bucket faster than you can empty the bucket. But more importantly, for Spotify's uh, operations, those songs that are stored in the cache memory of your device 
stay there so they can be used in the peer-to-peer sharing I was talking about. So the next time someone else in the network wants to listen to SOB, Spotify might be in part relying on your computer because you happen to have listened to that song earlier and it happens to be stored in your cache. So your device helps keep Spotify's service going. Sometimes the cache material might cause some other issues on your device. If you've got an awful lot of stuff on there, maybe you don't have a lot of space on your device, and you might notice that things aren't running as smoothly as they normally do. So Spotify allows users to go into their settings and see where offline songs are stored. Uh, This would be the cache that they rely upon. You can then go to that folder and delete the files in that folder to clear out the cache. Uh, That's just for the desktop version. For iPhones, it's a little bit more of a pain. Spotify advises iPhone users to reinstall the Spotify app. You know, essentially you're, you're taking it off your phone and putting it back on again, which will clear out the app's cache, but it'll also log you out of your account. So you have to log back in. You have to resync any offline music you have stored on your phone with your account. You have to reactivate any preferred settings you might want on there. So that's kind of a hassle. On Android devices, it's a little bit better. You can go into your library menu, choose settings, select other in the options, and then delete cache and save data. It's not exactly straightforward, but it's perhaps a little bit better than having to reinstall the whole app. Now, I'm not surprised that it's a bit of a headache to clear out the cache because Spotify's operation depends upon this peer-to-peer infrastructure, and the songs in your cache are what help ensure a smooth experience for people on the network. So your device is effectively working for Spotify, which is why they probably don't make it super easy for you to clear that cache. Your device is effectively working for Spotify. Now, I've got a lot more to say about Spotify, but before I get into that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so Spotify launches in 2008 in Europe and uses this peer-to-peer technology to help deliver high-speed streaming to users. The company had managed to make some deals with enough record labels to create a compelling but by no means universal music service, and it rolled out operations gradually, originally relying on an invitation-only approach to adding listeners so as to guarantee a good experience and not get overwhelmed right out of the gate. Plus, they had two tiers of uh, users. They had free users and premium users. Uh, The free users were the only ones that had to be invitation-only. If you wanted to pay for the service, they as many people could join as possible for that. They didn't want to limit that at all. Understandably, that's not snark. That's just, I mean, that just makes sense. Uh, The invitation served another purpose because it also gave the service an air of exclusivity. Nothing makes people want to try something out more than being told there's a limit to the number of users who will be accepted. And we saw the same thing when Google Plus launched. Each user would have five invites they could extend to other people. So finding someone on the service who hadn't already dedicated all five invites became a bit of a common pastime. You would look for your friends and say, hey, do any of you have an invite to Spotify? And like I said, the service did have two tiers. The free tier was supported by advertising, still is supported by advertising. Um, It has had a limitation on the number of hours that users could stream music per month. And the service also placed limits on the number of times you could listen to any particular track over a given amount of time. 
And those were really Spotify's way of of bowing to the music industry to uh, get these negotiations to work out. So if you listen to Spotify on the service, uh, you'd get a commercial between every few songs. And if you tried to mute the audio on commercials, it would just pause the ad. So really, you're just putting off the inevitable. The desktop application would likewise display ads over the user interface so you could get both audio and visual ads to generate revenue for Spotify and occasionally video ads playing as well. In addition, Spotify introduced a premium tier. So for a monthly fee, which has changed a few times over the years, uh, but for a a certain amount per month, you could get unlimited access to the music that was available over Spotify. There were no monthly restrictions on use. You weren't capped at a certain number of hours, and you also had no ads with premium. Uh, Premium users could also listen to Spotify offline. Obviously, that service would rely on the music stored on the device you're using. And you would get an unlimited number of skips of songs. If something was playing and you didn't care to listen to it, you could skip it. And then if you didn't like the next six songs, you could skip those as well, and you'd never run out of the skips. Oh, and you would also get that higher bit rate for your audio files, that 320 kilobits per second. That was another benefit for the premium use. Still is another benefit. I keep saying was, but this is still a thing. The company posted a $4.4 million loss in 2008. But then it's kind of hard to imagine a scenario where that wouldn't have happened. The company had to deal with startup costs, all those music licensing fees, had to pay for operations, had to pay out royalties. Uh, Spotify says they pay out 70% of their revenue in royalties to different music companies, music labels. And it had only just gotten started And it's also the sort of business that really generates serious revenue after it scales up. It actually is kind of a a money-losing venture until it gets to a certain size. But turns out that the loss was just the first in a long series of annual losses. Spotify was starting to get investors, but it wasn't turning a profit. In fact, it wouldn't officially turn a profitable quarter until February 2019. So... For more than a decade, Spotify lost money, though in one quarter in 2018, it appeared profitable, but that was because of a one-time tax benefit that Spotify received due to its stake in another music streaming service called Tencent Music Entertainment Group out of China. Now, that story gets a bit weird and complex, but it boils down to this. Tencent was going to hold an IPO in the United States. It was going to go public in the U.S., which meant as part of that process, it had to declare the company's value in an effort of going public. That also meant that Spotify had to reevaluate the value of its investment in Tencent because Spotify owned a percentage of stocks in the company. They had to reevaluate how much those stocks were actually worth instead of what was believed to be worth. That then led to Spotify being uh, eligible for a big tax benefit, and that technically put them in the black in 2018 for one quarter. But that sort of thing is obviously not replicable. It's not sustainable. It's no way to run a business. You know, you, you can't count on that happening every quarter. So the transition to profitability in early 2019 is more of a good sign for the company. And It's also interesting because it's a company that's valued at billions of dollars, despite having operated at a financial loss for nearly all of its existence. And it's another way of reminding me that business is crazy. 
that you can run a business that is losing money year after year after year, and yet the value of your company that is not making money is going up and up and up to a point where, you know, eventually one of two things needs to happen. Either your company needs to start making money so that all of that uh, investment in that company is justified or everything falls apart and everybody loses their shirt and a lot of people are out of jobs. I, I obviously prefer option A to option B, but it still blows my mind that companies like Spotify, Spotify is not alone in this, Twitter is another great example, but companies like Spotify could operate for so long without making money and uh, and yet still see the value of the company uh, on the rise. It's crazy. Anyway, jumping back to 2009 for a second. In February 2009, Spotify dropped the requirement for invitations and launched registrations in the UK. So if you wanted a free Spotify account, you could sign up if you were in Europe and no, specifically in the UK, you could sign up for a free account right off the bat. It also launched the Spotify mobile service. Uh, it was pretty primitive in the early incarnation, but it did expand its offerings to mobile phone users. I think this is a good time to mention it was sort of a serendipitous issue of timing for Spotify to launch in 2008 because Apple had introduced the iPhone in 2007 and Apple had effectively opened up the gates for an era of consumer smartphones. Because up to that point, smartphones had largely been reserved for executives and for bleeding-edge early adopters and no one else. The smartphone rev revolution really created a, a market for services like Spotify. Uh, people like having a portable music source. But Spotify executives would even admit later on, Daniel Eck admitted later on, that the company was a little late to create a truly robust mobile app, that they they were a little late to the game on that one. They, they still managed to capitalize on it, but they probably should have moved earlier than they did. However, even that early limited mobile service was a big hit, so much so that Spotify would actually close down those open registrations in the UK and went back to the invitation-only model back in September of 2009. So users could opt for the premium service without the need for an invitation, yet again. And again, it makes sense. Spotify wasn't going to say, no, we're going to limit the number of people who want to give us money. Meanwhile, Spotify was dealing with some of the other issues that tech companies have had to face throughout their own histories, like data security being a big one. In March 2009, Spotify representatives announced that the security team at the company had detected a security flaw in the Spotify service, which could have meant that someone had gained unauthorized access to private account information for people who had registered before December 19th, 2008. Whether anyone had actually done that was unknown, but it was technically possible. Spotify patched that vulnerability. Also in 2009, a guy named Mark Zuckerberg, you might have heard of it, um, posted on a little platform that he had co-founded called Facebook that he thought Spotify was, quote, so good, end quote. Kind of like Sweet Caroline. And that was an early hint of things to come in the United States. Well, it would take a couple of years to come to fruition, but Facebook and Spotify would be BFFs at that point. Spotify also introduced a music purchase option in some markets in 2009, which meant users in those markets could buy music tracks right off Spotify and use Spotify like an online music store similar to iTunes. That feature would stick around until early 2013 and Spotify then discontinued it. But for a while, that was another revenue source, was acting as a sort of an 
online retailer. In January 2010, Spotify had another headache to deal with. The antivirus software from Symantec identified Spotify as a Trojan horse form of malware, which seems pretty harsh to me. But you can kind of understand it because since it used this peer-to-peer relationship, it meant that there was a lot of stuff going on in the background. And that could look suspicious to an antivirus software. If they thought, oh, it looks like some program is trying to gain administrative access or some sort of backdoor access to a computer. So it was proactively blocking Spotify from working. So users with Symantec antivirus software found their Spotify programs were being nullified. So that was a big uh, pain for a lot of people for at least a short while until it was all patched out. 2011 was when Spotify was finally able to enter the U.S. market. So it launched in 2008. People over here in the U.S. had heard about it, but no one was able to actually access it without using, you know, VPNs or some other method to get around the fact that their computers were in the U.S. It had taken more time for the company to negotiate with music labels. Um, They had to, you know, every time they want to move into a new market, they have to renegotiate with music labels because the music labels want to be able to dictate how their music is sold in any given market. And the U.S. is a particularly big market. So it took a lot of negotiations. Spotify said it has paid billions of dollars in royalty fees over the years, though there have been some other stories that kind of raise questions about this. So, for example, one famous story that tends to get quoted all over the place, and I think it dates all the way back to 2009, is that Lady Gaga's track Poker Face had hit a few million streams early in Spotify's Uh, history, and yet generated only $167 in revenues. Not $167,000, it just $167, 100 bucks plus 67 more bucks, and that's it. Spotify doesn't have a stock per play royalty rate, but I've seen estimates of per play a track earning $0.006, so 0.6 cents, to $0.0084 or 0.084 0.84 cents, I should say. So not even a full penny per play. So you got to rack up a lot of plays to earn a dollar, let alone 167. Now that has led some artists to complain about Spotify, saying that this company is benefiting unfairly from the artist's work. And you can see where they're coming from. If they're saying millions of people are listening to my music and I got a hundred bucks for it, That does seem to be pretty unfair. But then Spotify kept operating at a loss. The company itself wasn't making an enormous amount of money. And according to Spotify, again, they were giving the vast majority of their revenues back as royalty payments to record labels. So maybe you could argue the record labels had some responsibility for this since they were so vehement in their negotiations with Spotify. But I think overall... It really just points out what a complicated industry the entertainment industry is in in general. So Spotify partnered with Facebook for the United States rollout, and U.S. users could download Spotify on their computers, and uh, they could create an account using their Facebook login information and automatically connect Spotify to Facebook. That helped drive adoption in the U.S. It also led to some controversy, Uh, There was a 2018 piece in the New York Times 
a report that found Facebook had some pretty liberal data-sharing agreements with various partners, including Spotify, and that those agreements gave companies extensive access to user data. And that included giving Spotify, Netflix, and the Royal Bank of Canada the ability to read private messages between users. Yikes. So why would they do that? Why would they give these companies the ability? Well, the thought was, at least for Spotify, that users could send updates on what they were listening to to their friends on Facebook through this messaging service. You could essentially say, uh, oh, I'm listening to Lady Gaga, and my buddy Shay really loves Lady Gaga, so I'm going to remind Shay, hey, hey, listen, I'm, I'm listening to Lady Gaga right now. Check it out and send her a message. Uh, this by the way, was a messaging service that predated Facebook Messenger, the current version of Messenger that Facebook uses. But in order to do this, in order to activate this ability, Facebook had to grant some access to the messaging service to Spotify. So it wasn't necessarily intentionally awful, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to conjure up how a system could be really badly abused in this way. But the idea was sort of similar to giving up the rights to a work so that it can be displayed on a uh, a cloud service, right? If If you create a document on Google Docs, you give up some of the rights of that document, but it's not meant to transfer the intellectual property over to Google. Rather, it's to give Google the permission to show you that document no matter what computer you're using, because otherwise Google would effectively be Uh, circumventing those rules for intellectual property. That was the same idea with this, but you could see how it was not particularly well thought out. In 2018, Spotify became the world's most valuable music company after its public listing on the New York Stock Exchange, which pushed the company to a valuation of $25 billion. And keep in mind that at that point, the company had still yet to turn a profit. Unbelievable. Now, these days, Spotify has around 96 million paid subscribers. Many more use the free option. And in early 2019, Spotify made another big move by acquiring Gimlet Media and a company called Anchor, both of which are big players in the podcast world. Anchor is a company that creates tools for podcasters to build, monetize, and publish podcasts. And Gimlet Media is a startup podcast network. Spotify plans to use those acquisitions to build out original programming on their platform, and the company estimates that in the future, non-music media will account for 20% of all streaming on Spotify, and the company wouldn't have to dole out royalties to the music industry for podcast streams, so that reduces costs for that particular part of its business. As of this recording, Spotify plans to spend another half billion dollars on podcasting in 2019. Serious business. It remains to be seen how this will impact the podcasting industry as a whole, which obviously I am very interested in since I'm in that industry. But there's potential for some pretty big shakeups coming down the line. There are a lot of questions about how Spotify will handle its in-house podcasts versus those from outside the company, as well as how it will handle ads that will play within podcasts. Uh, Any show that Spotify produces, they can probably monetize it any which way. Uh, For shows that they carry that are produced from outside Spotify, that's a little more tricky right? Like the shows I produce, we have ad breaks. I'm sure you've noticed them. 
obviously, we would want those ad breaks preserved if we were to uh, have our shows on other platforms like Spotify, which we do. And that's important because if they were stripped out, then we wouldn't be able to monetize those episodes and somebody else would be making money off of our content and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make our advertisers happy. It wouldn't make us happy. So it's, it's a delicate thing. Uh, presumably Spotify will preserve that. They, they are currently preserving the ads from out-of-network uh, podcasts. And then there are the Spotify exclusives that listeners will only be able to listen to if they happen to use Spotify's service. And all of this, I'm sure, is going to get hashed out over time. Oh, and one last thing, just before I finished the notes for this particular episode, some more news broke that Spotify is bringing an antitrust lawsuit against Apple in the European Union. Uh, The main charge that they are bringing is that Apple's policy is to take a 30% cut of app revenue and that this is specifically harmful to streaming services that compete against Apple, saying, well, if you take that cut for us to operate on your platform, then, and considering how much revenue we have to spend for our our royalties and everything, uh, it actually costs us money to work on your on your system. So what you're doing is you are discouraging other companies to compete with you on that space. So this is anti-competitive and thus uh, indicative of a monopoly. So that's where the charge is. Obviously, that's going to take some time to, to suss out over in the EU. So I'm sure I'm going to have to do a follow-up at some point. There's a lot more to talk about, but I'm going to save that for another show. I also plan on doing an episode that's sort of more philosophical, touching on some of the ideas I've talked about here about how our consumption of media has changed in my lifetime, how that has changed significantly, and what that has meant over the different eras uh, of, of media consumption that I have seen, because it is a really interesting journey, and it has shape not just the technology we use, but the way we use it. So look for that episode in the near future. Uh, it'll probably be me being a cantankerous old man saying in my day when we listen to podcasts, we had to do it uphill both ways, four feet deep in snow or something along those lines. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, why not write me? The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You will find links to our social media presence where you can go and bug me there. Or not bug me, but just say hi. and Maybe say, hey, could you do an episode about blah, blah, blah? And I might say, I would love to do an episode about blah, blah, blah. And that'd be fantastic. Or, you know, pop on over to our merchandise store. That's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Every item you purchase over there goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 